My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. Welcome everybody. Today I talked to Jeff about his collaborative campaign building system and how to outsource campaign setup to your players. A lot of the episode is focused on DM prep, so it's a fun episode if you want to have a better idea of how to reduce the prep that you're doing in your games. And as a heads up, there is a little glitch. We had some technical difficulties about 20 minutes in or so. Uh, so there's some audio that we missed, and then we started talking about experience points. So that that will just kind of jump into that section. So apologies for that. Before we jump into the episode, I just want to thank all of my listeners and give you a few ways that you can help support the podcast. The first way is just by listening to the episode. So congratulations, you're already helping me out. You can also interact with the podcast in any way, like, share, all of the usual things that also greatly helps me out, and it's super easy to do. The next way you can help is by interacting with the community, hanging out in the Discord server, playing or running games on the server, or joining in our design contests that we run. The third way you can help is by being interviewed or letting somebody else know that they should get on the show. All you got to do is contact me via Discord or Twitter or wherever, and we'll get some time scheduled to get you in on an episode. If you're still looking for ways to support the show, you can always use one of the affiliate links in the show notes for any of the RPGs or books that are mentioned. They link to either Amazon or DriveThruRPG, and if you make a sale for anything on one of those sites after using a link, then I get a small percentage of the sales. That's a great way to support the show while also getting something for yourself. And finally, the last way is you can support me on Patreon or buy me a coffee. I will have links in the show notes on where to go for that. And that's just a simple monthly donation to help fund future design competitions and equipment purchases and stuff like that. Thank you again to all of my listeners. I feel like we've been growing a really awesome community here around tabletop role-playing games. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today I have Jeff with me. Welcome, Jeff. Hey! And Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in tabletop role-playing games? For sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my name's Jeff. Uh, I am in my mid to late 30s. Um, super fast approaching those late 30s. Uh, I have been DMing for roughly 20 years. Um, one of my theater, uh, you know, theater nerd friends in high school was like, hey, guys, come try this game and just kind of immediately fell in love with it. Uh, you know, dumb little, you know, third edition half elf uh, sorcerer burning a feet to be able to wield a great sword. Just like just the worst mechanically um, uh, for my intro. Um, and then really fast after that, I had to start DMing because the, the theater kid buddy who was running the game couldn't make it for our beach trip with the friends. And we wanted to play D&D for like a full weekend. So uh, pretty much on like session two or three of ever playing, I had to start running the game and I've kind of not really stopped since um, something uh, we were going to talk about was uh, I've been developing a system to be able to minimize my prep because now, at, you know, at uh, oh, what's math 36, I'm got two kids, I've got a full time job, uh, but I, I still enjoy um, DMing the game. 
So I had to develop a way to kind of not do the 20 hours of prep that I would do back when I was 20. Um, cause I just, that's not time I have in the week. Uh, so that was the main thing we we're going to talk about. Um, but yeah, I just a longtime DM and player of Dungeons and Dragons for the most part with some toes dipped in some other systems as well. Uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of the perspective I come from. Let's talk about that campaign prep. I'm always excited to figure out new ways to condense the amount of time I spend on campaigns mm-hmm. or prep in general. Right. And it's this also came out of the fact that I just I can't do modules, uh, pre-written campaigns. I have such a hard time just like reading through and absorbing the information in a way that I can then like apply to a game. Uh, it's It doesn't cut prep out for me. I found I tried once and I realized I was doing as much prep time to be ready to run the module as I would have been just running a full homebrew campaign and probably with like worse outcomes. So when I prepare it, it's in my brain. Uh, I know where my notes are and what notes are relevant. And I can just, I can reference it really easily. So the basic concept is that you are outsourcing a lot of your campaign prep to your players. Uh, Your players generally make backstories and you can codify it a little bit and make it part of your session zero. Uh, I've done it with groups I'd played with for like a year and it takes about 20 minutes to prep the first arc of a campaign, um, including like map and everything. And then I did it in about 50 minutes with like a brand new group where we'd, I'd only played with um, one of the players before. So it's pretty straightforward. It works really great in person with like three by five note cards uh, where you can flip to like the blank side and just put a dot in the center and they make their hometown and they just like name their hometown and that's fine. And then they do the surrounding topography. So they're going to do like, oh, I've got their mountains to the north and there's a river to the east. And then off to the west, there's a, you know, a, a dead god baby. And then to the south is where the Death Star crashed. Um, you know, it can get it can get <laughs> yeah, you can go weird with it or it can be like really straightforward. You it's your session zero. It'll be pretty immediately apparent what the tone of the campaign is going to be. Uh, and, you know, people are showing up with their characters. And, you know, if you're playing a, like a, a grim, serious ranger from the north and you want to make sure you've got those mountains and uh, that forest and all that around you, you know, that's all fine. You do that. But once everybody has their three by five maps figured out, you can literally put them on the table and arrange them so that they fit into each other like a puzzle. And then you as the DM essentially just take a picture or lay it, put them on a piece of paper and just draw out the rest of the map that connects these different regions that your players came up with. So now they've built the map to the actual uh, campaign right there with locations where your adventure is going to take place with the cities that they're from, which is where, you know, your role play is going to happen and you just build it up out of that. And then you have the lined uh, side of the three by five card. And I just have them make, you know, they have their character, um, they don't have to get super in detail at session zero, but usually people have a character and like a build that they're doing uh, or planning by session zero. But I just have them make a friend NPC and a foe NPC. Um, so some examples, and again, you keep it kind of general so that um, you can fit these things together. So like in our current campaign we're going with, uh, Twang uh, is our, like our kobold monk. Um, Twang has a friend named Clang. Uh, who's like an ex-adventurer type, and a foe named Liam, who's like, you know, paladin, uh, you know, law bearer of the city that he's from. 
And then our other player who's playing Nyla has a, a friend named Dorothy, who's also an ex-adventurer. So then you can tie the two friends of those two characters together. And it's one of those like, okay, why are these two PCs together? Oh, well, they have your friend knows their friend and they knew you needed help. So they sent you over there to like, you know, meet up. And so that's how you all met. And then likewise, um, we'll have like Aoife has a, a friend who's like, uh, like a thief and a, uh, a bard who gets himself into trouble. And so you can tie that player's friend with Twang's foe. And so we had our campaign start with uh, Aoife's friend is currently arrested by Liam the Paladin. And uh, so there's there's a uh, immediate tie-in that the players are immediately invested in because it's their background, it's their characters that are involved. And they're tied in and you have your adventure hook like they're ready to go. And then uh, I as the DM can just like tie all these NPCs together and set up like you know, three or four storylines that are tied into there. And then whichever ones they are like, okay, we want to get on this. Then that's the first arc of the campaign. You can kind of build around it. So instead of me like isolated in a room for like 10 hours, trying to come up with a map, trying to come up with NPCs, trying to come up with how they're connected to each other in the world that somehow like will be engaging with the players. I've eliminated all of that and taken care of it, you know, in under an hour with brand new players that I've never played before uh, or played with before. So you essentially they, and they bring their characters to the table. You said, right. So the, uh, this one was online. So they just, they came in with, you know, uh, twang is like a kobold monk. Uh, you know, this is uh, some of this happens in chat, you know, um, when you're online or in like the text thread, if it's your friends at home and they'll be pitching their characters and stuff. Like we had a couple people pitch um, dragonborn, um, characters. So then a third person was like, hey, why don't I play a Dragonborn 2? And then somebody's like, is this going to be all Dragonborn? And then the person playing Twang was like, well, I wasn't going to play Dragonborn, but an idea for a kobold. And then that all kind of comes together um, for like a cool like theme of a party. And then they, so they've got a, just essentially a name, an ancestry, and a character class is all they really need. They don't need, you know, giant backstories, all, all this information is essentially in one page uh, with some bullet points um, without, you know, not not needing huge backstory pages and pages, but just these bullet points are enough to get the whole campaign prepped and put together. Typically, as a both a player and as a DM, I tend to like simpler backstories, and I also enjoy... Um, building that shared backstory together during like a session zero like this. So to really everybody sits down at the table, they have their characters, they write out a couple notes about basically their hometown and a friend and a foe. And then after that, the table basically throws all the note cards in the middle of the table and then rearranges them and tries to figure out how everything is connected. Exactly. Yeah. And it's sort of a, a co prep kind of thing. Um, Thinking of it like uh, if you were like in a writer's room, like if you have a room of writers that are all pitching ideas back and forth, you can get like a show made pretty, you know, relatively quickly, which is why a lot of like people that make content that way work in writer's rooms where the solo person by themselves in their writing room is, is one of those things that seems like it takes forever and doesn't always necessarily make, you know, for great uh, content, especially not, you know, on the fly quick content. But yeah, that's essentially the uh, the thing. And I've uh, I've done about 
two, I did about two hours of prep once I had everybody's notes. And a lot of that was just like redrawing the map with a, uh, with like a map making app um, to have it look a little nicer versus just doing it in like MS paint, which is like how I started. Um, Good old. And MS then paint. like, yeah, <laughs> it's MS paint. Um, it's, uh, you know, feels like pulling out the graph paper um, as a kid, you know, um, it's what you got. Uh but yeah, then uh, I do maybe 20 minutes of prep a week just to get like um, a list of names ready to go and uh, like, you know, shop if they're going to be in town. Um, but 20 minutes a week is entirely manageable for me. Uh, like, you know, 20 minutes to an hour, I can make that work over the course of a week where, you know, multiple hours was just never going to happen um, with like, you know, adult modern schedule. Um. And for your session zero, after you've kind of put together what the like a rough idea of what the world looks like, how all the backstories are connected, do you do any play uh, on that first session, or do you take that session zero just to completely figure everything out, and then you take that away and go do some more, you know, prep, and then launch with a session one? Uh, I do. I do a session zero play. It's usually something because um, I like to play with a lot of new players. Uh, it's usually something like uh, the last one we did was uh, like Carnival Day at the the city they're in. We basically just picked one of the cities for from someone one of the people's hometowns that kind of made sense with where we had all just agreed the story was going to go. We we're like, oh, it makes sense to start here. Um, so we start in that town. They're having their like town fair. And there's like athletics and acrobatics checks for like a climbing wall. And then there's like a an opportunity to make use of like a ranged attack or do something clever to get like a swing rope. And then there's like a door you need to break through or pick the lock or, you know, however you're going to get through this door. Um, and then there's like a, uh, I ended it with a the old the enchanter of the town who's just like old man wizard dude uh, wants them to like tell me something I don't know. And it's basically like you can make a deception check or a knowledge check to like come up with something he doesn't know. Um, and uh, I'm not super explicit about all those things. I like to do, do sort of a narrative forward game. Um, but yeah, that was basically it. And it was like, Oh, you can do clever things and get advantage so that we exercise that, you know, advantage disadvantage mechanic. Um, but yeah, a quick like setting neutral, uh, session zero play thing is how i like to i like to run those it's kind of like a tutorial level or something where it's there's low stakes uh, but new players especially can kind of get to grips with like here's how i how my character sheet works and here's how rolling works and and learning some of the mechanics that way for sure yeah i just saw a there was a dnd stream uh and brennan lee mulligan had a thing where the market they're at has a like a rite of passage, like alcohol shot that adventurers take when they pass through. And it was like, there's like a, a, a cuttlefish in it. That's like a psychic cuttlefish. And when you go to take the shot, you have, you roll your constitution saving throw with advantage, but you also make a wisdom saving throw with disadvantage. Um, and it was one of those, it was a funny little idea, but yeah, something like that, that gives people like that are new to playing like, an exercise of like, oh, this is the main mechanic you're going to deal with. Uh, so we're going to work it into this like first session. Um, and what does your prep look like for future sessions? I know you said it only takes you, you know, 20 minutes to an hour. What, what is that? What are you writing down? What are you prepping for? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, well, cause I've been 
prepping games for a couple decades at this point. Um, I I know what works for what I can improv and what I can't. Um, and so one of the things I can't improv very well just with my brain for some reason is names. So I always have to like, I hop on to uh, like donjon.com uh, is a pretty common resource. And I just, I pull up like a random NPC list so that I've got like 10 names of like random NPCs in case they run across someone that uh, that I, you know, unexpectedly, they're like, oh, I want to really want to talk to this shop owner. And I'm like, oh, okay, I need the shield. What's this guy like? And I'm like, uh, oh, that's this person. Um, so yeah, I get that, get that list going. I'll review um, what I've got prepared for where they're at in the arc, um, but, you know, tied into their backstory pieces. Um, so yeah, it's mostly list of names and then reviewing notes that I'd made for the arc. Um, so it's that, that hour or maybe two hours of arc prep that I'll do maybe once every like month and a half. Uh, that's sort of the bulk of it. And then the 20 minutes is sort of just a refresher that. And in that hour, hour and a half, I'll get the, I'll set up like the key items or like magic items. I want them to go ahead and find over the course of the level that they're doing. Um, I do like milestone experience, so that's makes that pretty easy to manage. Uh, where I'll, I typically try to get some kind of minor to major magic item, you know, about once a level or so. Um, the any shop details I want for towns is in there. Uh, so I kind of do that broad prep, um, and then I then all I have to do is make sure I've got you know a list of NPC names to reference and the session uh, you know spot checks. And then just having like monster stats and things for things that might come up, which only takes, you know, takes a couple minutes to put sticky notes in pages on books or open up a tab, you know. Um, but yeah, it takes around 20 minutes uh, a week when I'm not doing the big chunks. And <clears throat> so when you're planning for an arc, how long mm. typically does an arc last, like in number of sessions? Mm. Uh, that can vary wildly based on how distractible the the players are um (laughs) (laughs) and like where the arc is like we're right now um we i uh i literally made a mistake when i was drawing the map for somebody somebody said they put they put mountains to the north of their city and when i was drawing the mountain in ms paint i like over looped the like the little art you know like up and down you know um you know turn of the pen um, but we said, you know, uh, screw it. Well, it's canon. There's something floating over that mountain. And that's now our like main like push of the narrative right now is, uh, is like they're heading up to that mountain. Um, oh, sorry. I lost my train of thought for your question. <laughs> uh, uh, how long a set, uh, no, how long an arc takes? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, an arc is probably, I want to say like five or six sessions, um, of like, you know, two to three hour sessions. So the the arc prep is on my end one to two hours every six weeks or so, um, and then definitely under a half hour each week uh, of setup. You know, depending on if they take a hard right turn from uh, where they were heading before. Like if they get to the mountain with a thing floating over it and decide like, oh, that's a that's a heck of a climb, and I forgot my rope. Well. Oh well, that'll just ha- whatever bad thing is going to happen will just happen. Let's go back to town. Um, then I'm be like, oh okay, I guess we're not doing all these mountain encounters. Um, 
and go from there. Uh, but yeah, I could probably I can usually squeeze about five or six sessions out of that, you know, two hours of prep, you know, plus twenty minutes a week. And then is your your arc is that like when they complete an arc, then they level up? Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. So so right now the artificer from the cleric's background and the pirate captain from the ranger's background have teamed up to go harvest crystals out of a uh, a floating mass above a mountain uh, that we named the tra- the Dracobum, uh like a dragon egg you know essentially in the sky um and they're going to they need those to make like an airship um and so the cleric has essentially rounded the team together to go cut off the artificer um and the uh and the pirate captain from getting their crew up into that floating uh floating sphere uh and sort of desecrating it we made it like a dragon holy site so that all these dragonborn characters kind of have a an extra tangential connection with it um and yeah if they uh when they complete a like a narrative point that's when they get their level up um and that's that's kind of how I like to run things. Where if you're making progress in the story, that's going to get you faster level ups. And if you if you're going on tangential kind of side quest things, you can find cool stuff or get you know gold or what have you. Um, but if you want, if whenever somebody asks the level up question of like, hey, are we going to level up? I'm like, what narrative thing have you accomplished? And they're like, uh, nothing. And it's like, well, then you got to wait. Um, <laughs> it's kind of that, a, that's motivation, right? There. Yeah, yeah. That's that's probably a trick I learned early, where I was because that's people want to level up, and you go, "Yeah, what have you accomplished?" And they're like, "Uh, well, we hassled that bartender for a good hour and a half." I'm like, "Well, that didn't really move the story forward much, so no. Um, you gotta go. Uh, it's like you do know that your your friend is still imprisoned by that paladin. You might want to get on that. Um." Because yeah, that's the that's the carrot that I find players follow the fastest is because uh, I do like when stories are moving forward um, and when their level up is tied to it, then that's that's usually for the best. Which <clears throat> getting away from like XP leveling, where it's like, oh, let's just go kill a bunch of stuff so you can level up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we wonder how a whole generation essentially got raised to be murder hobos, and it's like, well, you put all the you put all the prizes behind all the squishy targets that they can solve with their pointy sticks. I know there's a clip of Brennan Lee Mulligan like, all right, we're wizard school. We're going to go, you know, kill some goblins. They're like, are we going to study <laughs> study magic? This is not how you level up. <laughs> you get better magic. You're going to go kill stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah the, yeah, wherever you put the stick or the the carrot is is the direction that yeah. the game will flow, right? And I know uh, some DMs that I've seen and, and played with even have expressed frustration at like people trying to circumvent encounters. Uh, and I'm, I've always found it to be a natural conclusion of like, well, yeah, that's the lowest risk, highest reward is to just bypass the combat, which is. To me, it doesn't bother me at all. If somebody expends, like, it's like, all right, I'm going to upcast invisibility, and the rogue has been leveling up and using their features to get insane at stealth, and we're just going to sneak by these guards. I don't really lament that. It's like, oh, man, I had the stats ready for these guards. It's like, oh, well, okay, move on. Uh, It's fine. Um, I think the the times I haven't had fun playing D&D are when the DM is trying to force it 
where it's like, I made this really cool rooftop uh, encounter and I really want them to fight these guys. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's four of us and we're all invisible and we all have plus 10 to stealth from the ranger casting Pass Without a Trace. Uh, and as you can tell when it's just like, all right, I'm going to sneak through this door um, while they're distracted by the bard who's out front. And it's just like, oh, the door's real heavy. I'm like, but last level I got these gauntlets of ogre power. Uh, I attuned to him, didn't I? And he's just like, yeah, yeah, it's just, they're, it's real heavy. There's no way to make it quiet. I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah. Players want to use their cool things that they have in their abilities, right? Right. And that was something I really wanted to, uh, I kind of, I put this like, uh, this collaborative campaign builder together really intentionally to make sure that I'm not doing that. Um, I don't want my precious thing I created to be like this, the focus of everything. Um, be that this cool encounter or this neat NPC. Uh, I was really wanting to get away from that as a DM and just make it purely player focused. A, from a practicality standpoint of reducing the prep incredibly. Uh, and B, just it seems like a better play experience for really everybody involved. Um, as I've gotten more experienced and better at uh, improving a session, uh, playing with other people's toys has turned out to be more fun um, than just playing with the toys that I made myself. And just having more brain power in the room to be coming up with stuff. People right. always throw things out. And, and even um, like if a player fails a role, it's funny how often the player will be like, oh, this probably happens. Like, you know, and you're like, oh, yeah, that is a good idea. That should happen. You know? Yeah. Uh, I'm taking... pretty. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm not famous for it, but I, I, I have a personal reputation with myself for uh, I'll put a puzzle in a game sometimes. But puzzles are kind of my least favorite thing to put in just because it usually it doesn't challenge the the character so much as it challenges the player and if you know if somebody's kind of tired but still came in they can just be it can just be a slog to try to get through a riddle so i have kind of a thing where if by like the third thing they've tried makes some sense then cool that worked uh, um the genesis system just says like hey you get this much xp per encounter versus like it doesn't matter if it's combat it doesn't matter if it's stealth um yeah, that's that's basically what I wanted to say on that. Basically, however you solve the problem, you get the XP. Uh, I know um, Monster of the Week I've gotten to play once, uh, once or twice, and they have that unique experience system where you only gain experience by failing. Uh, so it's built in and encouraged for you to try to do things that your character isn't good at, because uh, especially in, in things that don't like hinder like a combat or anything that's like deadly. Uh, you have like an incentive to just be like, my character is terrible diplomacy. Well, I'm going to talk to this guard because worst case scenario is we don't get to get in. And so we figure something else out um, or you succeed. And that's, you know, hilarious and funny because, you know, you shouldn't have been able to, because you're the underdog uh, person on that. Um, and that was, uh, that was something where the, all the tie-ins also that happen in, in uh, monster of the week prep, where you, everybody, it's like codified in the rules that you need to connect your story with the story of all the other players, um, which is a really cool idea, um, kind of related to what I was I was talking about with the uh, campaign builder. Um, and then Kids on Brooms is also one of those systems where 
they like, or that's part of the setup of the game is the players uh, with kids on brooms is sort of like a, um, like a Harry Potter universe kind of setting uh, and rule set where each player also makes a professor for the magic school. Um, I know in the dimension 20 thing, there was a really recognizable one where somebody made the potions teacher, a living cauldron uh, that, you know, you pass your exam by putting the potion into the cauldron and then it can like sense that it's, that it was done properly. Um, and like gives the lectures as like this floating, you know, bowl of metal. Um, and that's yeah, awesome. that's, yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> great. You run into a lot of these really cool things, essentially whenever you involve your players in the creation of characters in the universe beyond just their own specific character. Um, and I had some like, uh, so yeah, the whole system kind of, I think it's origins where I was, I was prepping a game and I hadn't prepared the wizard towers or the, how they worked in the setting. And then somebody was like, Oh, I really want to play a wizard. I was like, Oh, cool. Games in a day and a half. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to have time to prep a whole, how these wizards are part of this society. Um, so I just, instead of like expressing all that out loud, I just asked the player, I was like, Hey, what are the wizard towers like? And I was like, oh, I think they work like this. I was like, cool, rad. Cut it, print it. It's in the, that's the setting now. Um, and so Congratulations, you're in charge. Yeah, congrats. <laughs> it's, uh, I was like, makes sense to me. Cool, I don't have time to change it. So that's what it is. Um, and uh, yeah, the more I've, the more I've let go of the reins of the prep for the campaign, the happier I've been, I think. And, uh, and I'm always pleasantly surprised by the things that you know the the players make up so do you tend to put any limitations on uh like what kind of characters they can bring to the table because like typically at least from what i see online and and somewhat in the games that i've played in there's kind of like a well some of these races maybe don't make sense for kind of what we're going for so we kind of stay away from those ones Mm. um do you tend to put any restrictions on it or do you leave it wide open and then kind of figure out the theme and tone of the campaign in that session zero yeah the latter for sure the i like i don't have a a preconceived notion of exactly what the setting's going to be um We've generally been chatting usually about the the vibe, essentially, where if somebody posits the idea of like, you know, I really want to uh, or one of the one of the games we were talking about um, when we were kicking around the idea of doing prep this way was one person, uh, one person that's a good friend of mine had a uh, a Warforged character named Pants. Um, I don't know why he chose Pants for the name for his Warforged druid. But he went with pants. And then uh, I made the joke of like, oh, what if somebody plays shirt? And then somebody goes, oh, I could play head. And I was like, are we making a Voltron? Um, <laughs> and it's just like, is this whole campaign going to be a bunch of Warforged uh, wandering the countryside for like the pieces of enchanted items they need to reform their Voltron? And people were like, this sounds rad. And I was like, yeah, this is uh, unique and fun and cool and then you know the the death of all D games was scheduling and uh that particular campaign didn't get to happen but my um my character generation process i have us roll stats at session zero with each other just because the the like oh i got an 18 and a five oh is like just fun um and i have people roll the like 46 drop the lowest uh, but i haven't do them seven times 
and then drop the median, so the middle score, if they, you know, put them in order. Because um, I like, uh, when people want rolled stats, uh, I like when they're swingy. So, like, I got this 5, but I also got this 18. Um, makes for more interesting characters, from my perspective. Um, and then for, like, books to use, I leave it pretty wide open. The only thing I have is a, I have a narrative requirement for all optional rules. And that pretty much only comes up with feats and multiclassing. So the thing that takes me out of like the narrative of a game is when somebody's like uh, somebody's been playing monk for like three levels and they've never picked up a crossbow and they hit level four and they take crossbow expert. And I'm just like, why? And I'm like, oh, well, my build needs it for by the time I hit eighth level, I'm going to need crossbow expert and sharpshooter after I cross class into warlock. And I was like, what? None of this makes any sense for where we're at in the story. Um, uh, so I have that thing going on where if you want a feat, just let me know. Like if you want shadow touch at level four, you know, let me know so I can work a shadow dragon into this campaign and it'll breath weapon the party as it flies by, um, in this dungeon that you're, that you guys are exploring and, uh, you'll have been hit by this shadow magic and you can work that into your story of, uh, oh man, that shadow magic nearly killed me, but I came out of it. Uh, touched by the shadow itself, and I've gained this feature. Um, so that's generally my perspective on like the character creation for for everything. But it's pretty open for session zero, just because your your backstory can pretty much accommodate any of that kind of stuff. Like if you were a, uh, a, I guess a good example of one that didn't work for me was a player was saying like, "Oh, I really want to play this gunslinger." type person and i was like oh yeah cool you could uh we're not using the gunslinger class because it's not really published in a book it's not something i can like pull up and like look into it's like it's uh it's gonna be a hassle for me to track all these features and as a vibe it's pretty much a battle master um so uh totally play this character just use battle master it's gonna be you know simpler and more straightforward to keep track of um and same thing for like any uh, any other like homebrew content. It's one of those things where it's like it can work, but it's a lot of extra work for me to like kind of look at and see if it's gonna cause a lot of problems in the game or not. And uh, so we try to stick to anything anything published that someone, if they had like all the books, they could have it. Um, stuff like that is pretty much the only restriction that I have uh, on the stuff. Otherwise, they can show up to session zero with whatever. But the uh, yeah the 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 only problem I have is when something is kind of mechanically optimized while being divorced from like the narrative of the character. Right. Um, that's the only thing where I'm kind of like, what what's happening here? Who is this character? Um, that's the only thing that gives me pause really when somebody shows up with a character. You're just like a mess of mechanics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's it, and there's a difference between like um, my my character concept is kind of both a sorcerer and a warlock. So I'm playing like sorcerer warlock cross class when they show up at session one. I'm like, that's fine. There is no single class that's covering you there. Uh, so that multi-class is fine. And uh, if things, uh, if you tell me like, Hey, I'm playing this warlock, but I really want to cross class, you know, around level five um, into, into bard, then I'd be like, cool. You should probably work, like entertainer background or just be playing a loot or something, have something around that is a reason why your character would be jumping ship into this different skill set um, in order to make sure it's 
not narratively jarring to just be like, be like, I am a monk, which is why I have this gun. And I'm like, wait, sorry, what? Where? What's happening? Um, oh, that's <clears throat> that's really funny. That, that makes a lot of sense, though, just to keep everything cohesive. Um, and that, I mean, especially when you're in general, I would say that that's probably the the default that most DMs go to is to be like. If it makes sense in the story, then it's fine. Um, mm-hmm. Especially you have zero restrictions on basically anything else. So I think that that's, that's definitely fine to have like the only thing that you really consider is the narrative uh, implications of their class or things that they want to do. Right. And similar to like when somebody's playing a wizard. So now I need to think about the wizard towers. I don't really think that heavily about like the gods of the setting, unless the, um, unless the players are involved with them in some way. If you're a paladin or a cleric, you probably want to know how the gods work, and you might tell me how the gods work, um, or if there's like a cool like background thing I can put in. Um, so I guess spoilers for the current campaign. So if you're if you're in my D and D group, now's a good time to log out of here. Uh, so this this mistake I made drawing of uh, a little circle above a mountain. That we then decided, okay, it's canon. That's called the Dracovum. Um, it is the resting place for the gem dragon god, uh, whose name I don't have in front of me. So I just I have it built into the world's like mythos at this point that at some point Tiamat and Bahamut were on the world and they teamed up one time only to kill the gem dragon god and like imprison them in this floating like crystalline structure over this mountain. And this is, you know, ages and ages ago, pretty much everyone's forgotten this myth and history, um, but they are currently climbing up to it. And one of them has found a, uh, a brooch of shielding that also has a occasional messages coming in from this God who has not named themselves yet. Um, and is kind of hoping to be resurrected above this mountain on the material plane. Um, not expecting that to happen because they are level three at the moment. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I like work in any kind of world building is that kind of, well, one of my players wanted to play a gem dragonborn and one of my players wanted to play a dragonborn who's a cleric to Bahamut. So let's work in some dragon God stuff and some crystal dragon God stuff. Who's the crystal dragon God? And I had to like, look it up. Um, it's like, cool them. They're right there. Um, and yeah, that's just how kind of how I build the whole campaign. And it makes for just really interesting and unique stories. Uh, you know, as long as you can yes and it enough to keep it going, then it uh, it works out fine. It's really kind of comes back to the you're you're only prepping the things that you directly need, right? Like you don't need a whole pantheon of gods if none of the characters are like clerics or paladins, or if they're only concerned with, you know, their one specific God, like in this case, you Mm -hmm. have your, this gem dragon God. Um, You don't really need to fill out an entire pantheon of other gods, unless you would need those things. uh, Like if they were to go into some random temple or something, but otherwise why prep all of that information? if You're never going to use it. Right. Yeah, I don't need to know what Vecna was doing while this was happening, you know, unless one of my players is like secretly worshiping Vecna like behind the party's back, then I might involve Vecna in that somehow. You know, maybe Vecna is then holding the secret and is like leaving clues around to, you know, to sow discord um, and, you know, get their servant to have to, you know, 
act or rise up or whatever. But I don't need any of that because I don't have anybody that's like worshiping Vecna secretly. So you do all of this like collaborative world building stuff up mm-hmm. front in the session zero. Do you have points during the campaign at all where you kind of go back to the players and say, hey, I don't have this fleshed out. Can one of you take it and, and tell me about how this works? Or is it mostly done up front? Oh, no. Yeah, the, for sure. Like we have a um, uh, someone who's actually my wife's cousin is playing our uh, our. We actually made a uh, obsidian dragonborn because uh, they wanted to play like uh, they wanted to kind of wanted to play a black dragon, but just for the aesthetic. But they were uh, more interested in the gem dragonborn like mechanics were more interesting to them. Uh, so I was like, cool, well, Obsidian's black and Obsidian's kind of a gem. Let's make it that. Um, and so we'll do those kind of like reskin adjustments. Um, but they're currently in the wilderness, but as soon as they're done there and start making their way back to town, that town has that player's like thieves guild. And the only thing we'd fleshed out at like the session zero or around that time was that they had been, uh, booted from the thieves guild because they're suspected for like stealing a, a magic item. It was actually their, like their friend, uh, their friend who had done it, but they were still covering for them. So they were still sort of excised from the thieves guild. So we're going to have to flush out that thieves guild more, um, once they get, you know, turned around to head back. And so it's going to be like, Hey, who was, who is in charge of the thieves guild is, uh, how do you think it would work if you were going to try to get jobs back there? Um, or do you want to just get jobs from somebody like else in town that's kind of also been excised from the Thieves Guild? Do you know of any rumors of how it works uh, as far as like your safety in town since you've been excised and you're still doing crime jobs? Um, you know, we'll have to message and like hash all that out as we head back in just so it's a uh, honestly not to like make it's not like their input is. Uh, is scripture on like how it's gonna work, but I can ask them essentially for ideas and have somebody to bounce ideas off of, um, which is something that I find too many DMs don't have, uh, or you know, you don't want to reveal all of your secrets to your players because it kind of ruins the tension. Um, but you need somebody to kind of soundboard ideas off of sometimes, and where you can making it your players because, like, you know, the rogue would know how the thieves guild works and so uh you ask them hey what do you uh what would your character know about how this works and then you can go fill in those gaps um you know to make it more make it interesting or you didn't actually know that the boss of the thieves guild is the brother of the mayor and uh they work together you know or whatever uh little twist you want to put on it yeah that makes sense and letting them come up with ideas for things that their character would know specifically makes a lot of sense. I know mm-hmm. I've seen other situations where there'll be something in the world that is like common to the world, but then like the DM won't allow you to have knowledge of it or won't. Um, I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. it could be like considered metagaming or like they make you do a role on it or something. But a lot of times it's like, well, my character is a wizard. So I would, probably know this stuff about this thing right or um one of the one of our recent sessions that i'm I'm player in a game um there was an owl bear encounter and the dm asked us the players do you guys want this or how do you think you know owl bears are in this setting are they uh are they like evil creatures that were created or are they just like animals or what um and he gave that input to us which is really cool because and it's like, okay, we're in the world. These things exist. 
we happen to know about them and then we could just decide, you know, which, which version they were. Um, and it's yeah. nice to have that input as, as a player. Yeah. I've found that that kind of stuff I've always found gives that buy-in that we want where the players are invested in the setting and in what's happening. And then the, and then this uh, collaborative campaign builder that I was doing was essentially just to codify and intensify that um, so that it, it wouldn't just be, uh, the occasional thing or just like, or, or even just like minor things, but literally, you know, sitting down in session zero and making the campaign map together. And, uh, you know, I can add roads and rivers and like, I have to fill in the gaps of like, well, they add mountains to the North and you add mountains to the East. So we're going to kind of put those sorted together, but then there's this gap of mountain range and I'll have to fill that in. Um, but yeah, as much as I can having them fully invested because they made it up, uh, for as many features as I can, just puts a all the prep off of my plate um, for all of that stuff. I would have had to just try to dig out of the recesses of my brain on my own, and, and b just like is more enjoyable for them, um, you know, to be fully invested in the setting. Uh, so you you mentioned you have this process for your session zero. Do you have? I mean, aside from the note cards and stuff um, and drawing out the map, do you have anything that's like written down or any like forms or anything that you fill out, or is it just just kind of the on a on a piece of paper prep. Uh, I like to go through um, any like uh, like safety tools anybody needs and like all that like interpersonal jazz. Um, we'll go through that. Like I I have my like uh, red line topics I don't like to have in D and D games um, that uh, that are on me. Like I don't uh, I don't enjoy uh, you know pretty pretty drastically don't enjoy if like sexual assault comes up in a game, I'm like, I don't need that in my, uh, in my games. That's no fun. Um, and, um, I'm a little, I'm wary of like racism themes that come in, you know, like somebody, uh, the like extreme hostility towards, you know, um, a player because of their ancestry choice is just something that is a, a vibe. I don't, you know, jam with personally, um, and not as hard of a line as uh, the sexual assault thing, obviously. But um, but yeah, we go through all those things for like my preferences and then any uh, any player ones. And I've had players who bring up that like they they're pretty drastically arachnophobic. And so they literally are going to like fully shut down if we're like discussing, um, you know, spider monsters in the game. Um, and, and I've had people not mention that at session zero and then like we're mid session and there's a encounter with a with giant spiders and they like have fully like recessed into their chair um and we get to their turn and they haven't been able they've like had to mute the audio because they like were that um you know disturbed by it and uh so yeah mostly it's just safety tools aside from the campaign prep um is all we usually have to do and then you know hopping into a you know one of a low stakes um session zero uh, play session to you know knock out any kinks and see if they like the mechanics of the character they're choosing um you know if you're if you thought you were gonna like ranger and then you start trying it out and you're like ah, i kind of don't love these features then it's like well you want to tweak over to fighter and just have like a like a wilderness person kind of background um you know whatever tweaks we want to make to characters before session one um yeah that's usually usually all i feel like we need to go through on a session zero Sure. Uh, that that actually leads into um, a question nicely. Do you ever let your players switch 
you know, like classes and stuff like partway through a campaign. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Um, I mean, I feel like the alternative is like um, a player just ends up being that char- that person with a death wish, and it's just like like we're climbing this mountain, and I don't want to play this ranger anymore, so I jump, and it's just it just is a narratively shocking and abrupt kind of thing, um, where you can kind of massage it a little more when there's that that switch over, and you can make it narrative too, where. Like, if someone was playing a ranger, but then they realized that oh, I'd rather play like an archer fighter, um, you can have them just, like, lose connection with their uh, with their magic. And, you know, you could have them... Uh, oh, you take a... You go to take a shot at the enemy, and you accidentally... It flies past them and hits a deer in the background, and that deer was, like, sacred to the forest, and you've lost connection to your nature magic now. Um, and they're like, oh, no, I have to just rely on my bow. And it's like, oh, yeah, we'll express that with... Oh, now you're now you're more of a battle master. You've had to, uh, you know, think about your maneuvers and stuff. There's ways to narratively uh, make it work usually, and uh, that's my only real concern. I don't, uh, I don't mind so much if somebody was playing, even so far as like uh, they thought they would like sorcerer, but then they're playing their character as more of like a nerdy, um, you know, magic researcher, and they realize like you know this is probably more of a wizard and then it's you know i don't have a i don't have a problem personally with somebody wanting to change up their mechanics to fit their narrative better um because i'm i'm definitely of the perspective of just narrative forward uh you know whatever works for the the story that's unfolding yeah back to the as long as it narratively makes sense we'll figure out how to connect the dots basically exactly do you have anything else you'd like to say on the narrative forward side of things um, I, not in particular, I just, uh, I think I do see a lot of, like, min-max build things, uh, you know, on the internet, in, you know, in the content sphere, which is all well and good. I kind of wish there was more of an emphasis on how the story would unfold and make sense. Um, I think, uh, oh man, I'm forgetting the name of the channel. Um, it's, uh... Oh, I'm not going to think of it. Um, but there's there's a channel that you know they have a they have a a cool Reddit and they they do like they do a bunch of min max builds and uh, he has recently started doing more. Uh, hey, here's the story of this character, and I think that's uh, that's really helpful because if you're hopping around to like three different classes and taking a bunch of feats and you're you know, going with uh, like custom lineage when the reality is just you want to have dark vision and a feat. Um, it helps to have some sort of idea of like, well, how would the how would the story of this character play out um, versus just like a raw numbers, you know, throw things together kind of thing. Um, and I think those make for more interesting characters and more believable from like a story perspective. If you were reading a book or watching a movie and someone is developing these skills uh naturally over the course of something unfolding it just it makes sense um it's sort of the you know the like the checkoff's gun kind of thing like if your player finds a finds a gun and then learns how to be good at guns that makes sense uh if somebody learns how to be good at guns and then finds the first gun you're kind of like well how'd you get good at guns and you not then found one like the timing of this all seems weird um, so like right now we have a ranger character who has a, a firearm they stole. We kind of worked it into the, the kind of pirate background. 
um, but they don't have proficiency with it yet. Um, so they're just like, and they've used it in a couple of con, a uh, couple of combats, and actually hit some stuff with it. So fully expecting them to take the feat to be proficient with firearms when they hit level four, and it makes sense uh, in the narrative that's you know been unfolding. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I think I know which channel you're talking about, but I also can't think of the name. Yeah, of it's the a very, channel. It's a very fit uh, guy, and I who I believe lives in Utah, um, but I do not know the name. It's escaping me. Um, so <clears throat> shout out to the name. I can't remember that he does. <laughs> he does make he does make cool like min max builds, and I and I do really enjoy that he started doing the. Uh, uh, the narrative side of uh, of things, or yeah, I think he's gone off and on on it um, over the course of videos. Uh, but yeah, always always cool work, and like uh, I do like that the the I like his min max builds because he actually does like check ins um, at like key levels to be like here's how much damage per round they're doing, uh, assuming these things statistically um, and all that. But you know, you never know what kind of table you're gonna be at. Like I. I had a table that was, they had no feats, no multi-classing. They wanted everybody, they wanted to try a game that was just straight your class. So then a lot of min-max builds kind of don't make sense because all of them require, you know, feats or multi-classing. Um, and so you just got to move forward with whatever just makes sense for the character. Now, I do like allowing feats and multi-classing that make sense for the character. Uh, because if you're a character who wants to play out like I was a paladin and then I fell... And may, but uh, uh, I I fell out of favor with the god, but I'm not evil. Then it doesn't make sense to go like uh, you know with a fallen paladin, you know, change of class or any of that. But it would make sense if you went like celestial warlock and be like my my new path is following this particular angel. Um, then it, you know the multiclassing can make sense uh, and you know fit the character really well. I have one more really fun example of like narrative forward multiclassing. Um, so uh, a, a buddy of mine, we're playing in a wild mount campaign and he's a, a six intelligence fighter when we start. Uh, and then at level four, the party found a, a headband of intellect and they gave it to the fighter uh, just cause that would be the funniest thing. Take the guy who has an intelligence. Nobody needed intelligence for their like class. So they just gave it to the fighter because he had an intelligence of six. So he went from an intelligence of six to an intelligence of 19 and immediately multiclassed into Barbarian um, because he was like, now that I know what's happening, I'm really mad. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, same. <laughs> like, now that I'm fully aware and uh, cognizant of all of the injustices in the world, I'm so much more angry than when I was just like, thought everything was fine. Um, and it was a really funny you know, very narrative forward multi-class that happened there. I actually almost encouraged him to to hold off a level because he was he was level four. And I was like, go ahead and hit level five, man. Get that extra attack before you, you know, split over. And he's like, no, no, it's fine. I'll just, I'll just do it now. I'm like, all right, sure. Um, but yeah, I always thought that was funny of like, they, he got really smart and that made him really mad. So he had to multi-class <laughs> as a barbarian. Uh, no longer uh, innocent and um, naive anymore. Yeah. <laughs> very much of like, all of the fathers in all of the world always protect their children. And it's like, no. And then he's just like, Oh no. Oh, that's really bad. And then got really mad. And it was a, it was a, that was a, that was a very fun uh, uh, narrative beat in that campaign. Was there anything else that you wanted to or talk about? Not in particular. I guess I could plug my socials. Um, yeah. Go for it. Sure. Uh, yeah. I'm Jeff. Uh, it's at gone wild mount. Um, 
on the uh, on the Twitters. Remember, there's an E in Wild Mount when you're looking for it. Uh, same thing for the YouTube channel where we, you know, I just sort of post things mostly for my reference. You know, our old sessions and then advice videos. Uh, there are two examples of the uh, collaborative campaign builder over there. One with terrible audio, uh, although it is it is shorter. Uh, and then one with, you know, okay audio, uh, that's probably better to go look. And that's that's the gone wild mount uh, over there as well. Um, but yeah, go check out the Collaborative Campaign Builder. And I hope it cuts out a ton of your uh, prep that you don't have time for uh, and, you know, makes things fun. And the, uh, the, the 50-minute one, you can see me literally screw up drawing a mountain and that become a major plot point of the campaign. <laughs> which uh, is something I will remember for a long time of like, oops, that's not how I draw a mountain. Oh, well, all right, it's canon. It's part of the world now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeff, for coming on. It was a blast to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server. 